Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm the senior editor of that monthly title. And if you'd like to hear more interviews or indeed read them for yourself in the magazine, then do go to our website, premierchristianity.com. We'll also be delighted to send you a free sample copy of the latest edition of the magazine if you simply ask for one at the website. That's premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Well, today's interview is with the former chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs. This was on the occasion of his being awarded the 2016 Templeton Prize, an award that recognises the contribution of a living individual to our understanding of life's spiritual dimension. So I sat down with Lord Rabbi Sachs at the time he was awarded that prize last year. And this was our conversation on his life and faith. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, thank you very much for joining me. Good to be with you. Um, You've just been awarded the Templeton Prize for 2016, Mm. uh, a very prestigious award. Mm. How how did you respond to that when you you found out you'd been offered it? Well, first of all, sheer surprise. Then a little (laughs) moment uh, when I told Elaine and we did a little dance together. (laughs) Elaine being my wife. wife. (laughs) And um, then, you know, a, a sense of real humility actually and also you know wb Yeats once said in dreams begin responsibilities well i think with prizes begin responsibilities of feeling that Mm. Uh, it was a a wonderful form of recognition but obviously the most important thing is to give back absolutely uh when you received it at the award ceremony you you thanked god and i like the phrase you used who believes in us so much more than we believe in him yeah um, what, what do you mean by that exactly? Though? I mean, you know, um, that he actually had the faith to create a universe out of which would emerge life and then us. And I think if you read the opening chapters of the Bible, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the generation of the flood, and this extraordinary line that God regretted that he had ever created man on earth. Mm. And it grieved him to his very heart. So it begins with disappointment, divine disappointment. But then, you know, after he's done this thing of the flood, he begins again with Noah. And he kind of pledges himself. Yeah, maybe I'm going to be disappointed, but I'm going to stay with it. He had faith in us. And therefore, you know, it always seemed to me that our faith in him was pretty secondary in the scheme of things. But his faith in us is absolutely essential. And that, of course, is really um, at the heart of Abrahamic monotheism. I always say the Greeks gave us tragedy and the Hebrew Bible gave us hope. (laughs) And they're different kinds of cultures. Um, A tragically configured universe is one that came into being for no reason will cease to be one day for no reason. And that is tragedy. But Judaism is the principal defeat of tragedy in the name of hope. And that hope is grounded in the fact that our merely being here is testimony to God's faith in us. We'll come back to some of the things you said in your acceptance speech at the ceremony. Mm. But I'd like to take you right back to your early childhood. Mm. You obviously grew up in a Jewish setting. Mm. Um, What were your first remembrances of your faith and the faith of your parents? Well, until I was two, two and a half, three, we lived in a kind of extended family with my grandparents and assorted uncles and aunts and cousins uh, in Finsbury Park in London. And, you know, you began to get a sense of the fact that Every Jewish family is a series of extraordinary stories. I mean, on my mother's side, they they were the grandparents with whom we were living. They came from Lithuania, but my great-grandfather had moved to Israel in 1871, uh, actually built the first house in one of the first towns in the new settlement of Israel and had been forced to come to England in 1894. 
So there was something of a mystery there that Jews never stayed in one place very long, that there was something indefinably sad mm. about the music of the synagogue, which I clearly remember from when I was around two years old. Uh, that sense of suffering, but endurance mm. that you could hear in the music. Then, as the grandson of Rabbi Frumkin, who was not an, a practicing rabbi but qualified as one, I was privileged to, you know, in the synagogue when we lift the Torah scroll and bind it, there's always some silver ornamentation bells that we place on the scroll. So, as his grandson, when I was two years old, I was given the job of putting the silver <laughs> bells on the scroll. And that, I think, that began my endless fascination with the idea that in Judaism, what is holiest of holies isn't a place or a person. It's a scroll. It's a book. Mm. And somehow those words are God's love letter mm. to our ancestors and his laws of life. So I think my fascination with the Torah, with the Mosaic books began then and there. Those are the shaping memories of my life, together with what's probably every Jewish child's first memory, which is as soon as you can manage it, at the age of three or so, at that special festival, Passover, at the Seder meal, when we tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt, the story has to begin with questions asked by the youngest child. Why is this night different? So I think uh, I can remember this huge extended family in my grandparents' house. And the first time I said Manishtana, and I learned a couple of things from that. First, that Judaism is a very child-oriented faith. And that's what makes us paradoxically one of the oldest of the world's faiths, but also one of the youngest, because mm. it's so child-centered. And I also learned the other really important thing about Judaism, which is it encourages questions. It doesn't silence yeah. them. You went on to have successful undergraduate and graduate career at Cambridge University mm. that began and uh, one of the things though that you recognized I think was that not everyone sort of retained their uh, religious observance uh, mm. among the Jewish community mm. while you were there what what made you hang on to it and what, what was making others your peers not particularly engage with it I think you know everything about my family life mm. My parents, because of the circumstances of the war and everything else, my father had come over as a refugee from Poland as a young child. So they never really were able to have an education. They never really were able to live their dreams. And I felt very privileged and responsible. You know, we felt the four boys, I'm the eldest of four boys, that somehow or other we were going to be given chances that our parents never had. And yet I could see in both my f late father and my late mother, an enormous love for Judaism. And the fact that it made them walk tall. Mm. Um, my father was a very proud man, and he was just proud to be Jewish. And, um, you know, he loved everything non-Jewish about art, music, culture, literature. He was very open-minded, my mother no less so. But they felt being Jewish was, was something special. And so I think that's what I had. Whereas I think some of my contemporaries came from families that were better established. And for them, Judaism was something they just took for granted. And so they could perhaps lose it without feeling they were losing part of themselves. Mm. You sought the counsel of uh, a senior rabbi in America mm. during your years as a mm. student. Um, what, why did you visit him, and what was the result of that meeting? Well, I ran around America. This was the big death of God moment mm. in Britain and America. You had the Bishop of uh, Southwark, John Robinson, honest to God. You had all these radical theologians, Paul Tillich, Thomas Altheiser, all these people. And so it was a great God, of mo God is dead moment. And that, that was the headline on time at Time magazine at one yeah. point, wasn't it? Is yeah. God dead? Yeah. Is God dead? Uh, although I'd already seen in the uh, graffiti in the Cambridge University Library, God exists. It's just he doesn't want to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> so I always knew there was a bit of nuancing to be done there. But I ran around America 
because there, are, there were a lot of American rabbis who, who were academically very impressive. Mm. And every one of them said, you know, and I was saying, who else should I see? And this name kept coming up again and again, Rabbi Schneerson, who was, you know, some, somebody that other rabbis held in awe because he'd taken this very small Russian mystical sect and transferred it to America, uh, you know, in the Holocaust years. Mm and turned it into this outreach movement, this evangelizing movement, not, not to non-Jews, but within the Jewish people. Now, nobody had ever done that before. Mm. In the whole of Jewish history, you search for a precedent, and you can't really find one between the end of the prophets and, mm. and now. So he was clearly somebody very special. And I once said about him, and I try to understand why he was the first Jew who really went out to other Jews mm. who were lost and to approach them in love. And I, I suddenly realized that he had lived through the Holocaust and he had seen Hitler hunt down every Jew in hate. And Jews believe in something called tikkun, mending the world. And how do you mend an evil that great? Mm. And I suddenly realized the only way you can mend that is to search out every Jew in love. And I suddenly realized that was what he was trying to do, a post-Holocaust tikkun, a kind of mending mm. of this enormous wound in the human spirit. And when you met him, I think that was fairly formative in your own call mm. to being a rabbi yeah. yourself. Well, here's a guy who thousands and thousands of people wanted to meet and here was I, a 20-year-old second-year university student from nowhere. He had no reason to see me at all. But he did see me, even though everyone told me he'd be much too busy. Forget it. But I didn't forget it. And gave me a lot of time. I mean, not, not huge amounts of time, I think, 20, 25 minutes. But given that there were queues of people still waiting to see him, and it was quite late at night, I thought this was extraordinary. You know, somebody that great taking that kind of trouble with somebody who was so small, I, you know, it made you feel mm. great, you know. And he challenged you to consider going forward yourself. Mm. I mean, leading is the last thing in the world I ever dreamt of doing, least of all in some religious capacity. <laughs> um, and here he was challenging me. Well, you know, somebody that famous and that great, yeah. and that holy, if you like, if he does something like that to you, you kind of it keeps you awake at night. Sure. I mean, it didn't instantly change my life, but it stayed with me for five or six years until it changed my life. You went on to hold positions of leadership mm. in synagogues and mm. so on. Um, of course, many people know you best for the over 20 years you mm. spent as chief rabbi mm. um, in the UK. Um, just for those who maybe are not familiar mm. with the the nature of Judaism in the UK. Could you give a, a brief sort of potted history of the different types of Judaism you'd mm. find and, and who exactly you were, if you like, if you like, representing mm. during your time as chief rabbi? Jewish community in Britain has always been quite small relative, say, to the United States. Jews were readmitted by Cromwell in 1656. Technically, they weren't readmitted. He just discovered there was no <laughs> reason not to admit them. So it was kind of right. a little diplomatic finessing. Mm. Um, and the first Jews who came in 1656 were these um, very tragic figures who had been driven out, expelled from Spain in 1490, Portugal 1497, and who'd been wandering the world in search of refuge. The first country that really let them in in Europe was Holland. And it was a Dutch Jew, Manasseh ben Israel, who came to intercede with uh, Oliver Cromwell. So the first Jews were what we call still to this day the Spanish and Portuguese mm. Jews. Um, the Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews from Northern Europe, came somewhat later, mainly in the 19th century. And I was chief rabbi of those. Now, until relatively recently, the overwhelming majority of British Jewry, of world Jewry, was orthodox, what's nowadays called orthodox. Mm. In those days, you didn't need to call it okay. anything, but it was standard. But it was in the 19th century that various sects and schisms emerged, mainly in Germany, actually. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Reform Judaism, something called Masority or Conservative Judaism. In Britain, they're still a minority, but a, 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 a sizable minority. Mm. And then, of course, in Britain, you have lots of Jews who um, see themselves as Jewish, but in quite a secular, yes. ethnic, cultural in, way. In a more of a cultural way, yeah. So anyone who tries to define what <laughs> or who a chief rabbi is chief rabbi of is not going to get very far. So I kind of mentally said, let's try and speak, you know, for as near as I could get, the sure. honest Jewish soul and the open Jewish mind. And mm. if it works, it works. And if people say, well, he's not my chief rabbi, that's, that's okay. You know, right. I didn't really sure. seek to define it very closely. But you did seek in that time to, some have said, revitalize the, the Jewish community in terms of its um, integration and what it offered to mm. British society. What, what do you think was lacking that you well, I'll tell to you, see happen? You know, I wanted to explain to people that the fact that we'd been Jewish in the past was no guarantee that our children would stay Jewish in the future. Mm. And, of course, I couldn't get them really to think hard about this, so I put it in a different way. I said, how long does inherited wealth last? <laughs> you know, and they'd think and they'd sort of say about three generations, you know. If, and I said, you're right, that, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if your grandparents were very rich, you're probably okay. But if you're, it's your great-grandparents, you're probably not. So if you're fourth generation, you probably have to go and make it for yourself. Mm -hmm. I said the same is true about Judaism. Right. If you can remember grandparents who spoke Yiddish and came from Eastern Europe, and you know, you'll stay Jewish. But our children are the children of the fourth generation. So we're going to have to help them make it themselves. And the thing we really did was to build a lot of Jewish schools just because we couldn't rely on tradition anymore. We had to rely on people knowing what it meant to be a Jew. And because they know, they care. There was, in a sense, carrying on that vision of your mentor in that sense of mm. evangelizing to mm. the Jewish people. Mm. Um, and I think that's doable because we don't try and evangelize anyone else, not because we don't love everyone else, but because we don't think we have a monopoly on salvation. I mean, let's talk about that, because it, it, that, that perhaps is one of the, the distinctives of the three Abrahamic religions, mm. let's say, Islam mm. and Christianity, mm. very much missionary movements, mm. not so much with Judaism, mm. obviously, though yeah. you wouldn't repel or stop people God who forbid, really wanted no. to become Absolutely Jewish, but, but you don't seek converts. Yeah. Why is that? Because... Uh, I, you know, if you read the Bible closely, you see two things. In the book of Genesis, there's this whole problem of the Tower of Babel. Mm. You read Exodus, there's this whole problem of Egypt of the Pharaohs. And against that, you set Abraham, you know, one man who didn't do any miracles, who wasn't ruler of any empire, who didn't command any army, who just lived with his wife and tried to be a blessing to the people around him. And I suddenly realized Judaism is protest against empires. Mm. And an empire is something that seeks to impose a single truth or a single system on a plural world. So Judaism never believed that, we, that the Jewish way is the only way. It's clear in the Bible, the Bible is full of heroes and heroines who are much better than Jews. And they're not Jews, but they're just moral people. Like, for instance, Pharaoh's daughter, mm. who rescues Moses, saves his life, gives him his name. Now, um, you know, she was the other side. She was an yeah. Egyptian. She was the child of, you know, a tyrant. And yet she was a good human being. And that you find the same all the way through. Ruth, who is a Moabite, becomes... Mm the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King yeah. David. So I really tried to summarize the way I understand monotheism, which is not one God, one truth, one way. The miracle of monotheism is unity in heaven creates diversity on earth. Mm. And that's how I understand yeah. Judaism. Obviously, a lot of your work has been in helping people of different faiths and cultures to understand and live within those differences. Um, but we're talking now as I'm a Christian and you're a Jew. Um, what, 
I suppose, how, how do you approach me and, and my view of Jesus? Obviously, I, I believe Jesus was a Jew. Mm. He was a rabbi. Mm. What, what's your view of Jesus? What, what do you make of that? Well, look, the first thing to say, and uh, this is not something people expect a chief rabbi to say, is that I went to Christian schools. Mm-hmm. St. Mary's Church of England primary school and a secondary school in Finchley called Christ College. So I grew up in Christian schools surrounded by Christian friends and Christian teachers. And, you know, I found that such a blessed experience because here were people who took their faith seriously so they understood why I took my faith seriously. And the result is I was given this extraordinary education in what it is to make space for people who are not like you, whose religion is not like theirs. And, uh, you know, that's an extraordinary, I would call it an Anglican tradition. I I mean, it's true for all the Christian groups today, but it wasn't always in the Mm. Middle Ages. So it was the generosity of Christians towards me as a Jew that helped shape my view that you can be very religious and yet just touch and be touched by another soul from another faith and... Mm. That's always seemed to me something very beautiful and we don't hear enough about. Mm. What what is your, sort of, how would you describe the person of Jesus historically yourself? Do you you think of Jesus as a rabbi or or obviously figures far more in Christianity than he ever would in in, in an Orthodox Jewish setting? I I think you have to understand this. Jesus is a figure who makes eminent sense in a Jewish context. Mm. He was a, you know, uh, in, in one sense an heir to the prophets. In another sense he was a rabbi of a very, very familiar kind. We have great recollections of a rabbi called Hillel who went around teaching love and, and, and kindness towards strangers who lived maybe around a century before Jesus. Famous rabbi, Rabbi Kiva, who set loving your neighbor as the fundamental principle of Judaism, who lived in the generation immediate. They would have overlapped mm. uh, just a but No, actually, they wouldn't. He lived in a generation, one generation later. So Jesus makes sense in that context, humanly, geographically. You know, in the Galilee, that's where you'd go out and do yeah. your outreach, you know, because mm. people in Jerusalem were, mm. by and large, pretty literate and observant, but in Galilee, you know, Galilee is a place that still needs outreach, (laughs) and it's a beautiful place to be, but, you know, so all of this makes sense against Mm. the backdrop of early rabbinic Judaism. The the really, the separation of the ways was really that Paul developed a concept that doesn't really exist in Judaism. That, uh, the concept of original sin. So we, we have always believed that there's actually nothing at all original about sin, and we all suffer from mm. it, and what we do is we have this great day, Yom Kippur, our day of atonement, um, when we um, repent, confess, apologize, and we try and make good our wrongs. So we don't really need that kind of um, the death of Jesus to, as it were, uh, neutralize uh, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because we don't see that sin as having been transferred across the generations. Sure. I mean, obviously, another distinctive between Christianity and, and Judaism, obviously, is that, that Christians would believe that Jesus was the Messiah yeah. prophesied in, yeah. in the Old Testament and so on. Well, it's the oddest thing about Judaism is it is the religion that gave the idea of the Messiah mm. to the world. Yes. And there have been many Jews, uh, certainly in, in early Christian times, many people thought that the military leader, Bar Kokhba, was the Messiah. There were many, many messianic figures mm. all the way through history. Mm, I sure. mean, to the, all the way, there were people who thought the rabbi who... I had that conversation with Rabbi right. Schneerson was the Messiah. Right. We've always mm. had Jews mm. who felt this, but the main v- stream voice in Judaism has always been the one that says, when asked, has the Messiah come? Always replies, not yet. Mm. There was a wonderful philosopher 
at Harvard called Robert Nozick, who in one of his books says, when the Messiah comes, he will be met joyously by a group of Jews and Christians. And they will come up to him and say, Welcome, Messiah. We have been waiting for you for such a long time. It's wonderful to see you. By the way, is this your first coming or your second? (laughs) And he answers, I advise him not to answer the question. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Justin Briley. If you'd like to listen back to this and other interviews, why not check out The Profile online at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile or indeed find us as a podcast on iTunes. Well, I'll be back in a moment's time for the second part of today's interview with the former Chief Rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, speaking to him on the occasion of his being awarded the 2016 Templeton Prize last year. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's Profile. I'm Justin Briley, Senior Editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And if you'd like to read more interviews with Christians from all walks of life, can I recommend that you pick up a free sample copy of the mag you can find it at premierchristianity.com slash free sample well before we return to my interview with the former chief rabbi lord jonathan Sachs, an interview that took place last year when he was awarded the 2016 templeton prize why don't we hear a segment of his acceptance speech at the award ceremony one is the strange fact that having lagged behind china for a thousand years the west overtook it in the 17th century, creating science, industry, technology, the free market, and the free society. How did that happen? The second is, no less strange, the fact that Jews and Judaism survived for 2,000 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, having lost every single thing on which their existence was predicated in biblical times. They lost their land, their home, their freedom, their temple, their kings, their prophets, and their priests. And the explanation in both cases is the same. And it is the precise opposite of outsourcing. Namely, the internalization of what had once been external. So, for instance, though Jews had lost their land, Jerusalem, the temple, nonetheless... They rebuilt them in the mind. Wherever in the world Jews prayed, there was the temple. Every prayer was a sacrifice. Every Jew a priest, every community a fragment of Jerusalem. Something similar happened in strands of Islam that interpreted jihad not as a physical war on the battlefield, but as a spiritual struggle within the soul. And it's something very similar that happened within Christianity after the Reformation, especially in the Calvinism that in the 16th and 17th centuries transformed Holland, Scotland, England of the Revolution, and America of the Pilgrim Fathers. In fact, it was that to which Max Weber famously attributed the spirit of capitalism, i.e. the external authority of the church was replaced by the internal voice of conscience. And that internalized conscience made possible the widely distributed networks of trust on which the smooth functioning of the market depends. We're so used to contrasting the material and the spiritual that we sometimes forget that the word credit comes from the Latin credo, which means, I believe, anima amin. We sometimes forget that confidence That requisite of investment and economic growth comes from fidentia, the Latin for faith or trust. What emerged in Judaism and in post-Reformation Christianity was the rarest of character types, the inner directed personality. Most societies for most of history have either been tradition-directed or other directed. People do what they do because that's how it's always been done or because that's what other people do. Inner directed types are different. They become the pioneers, the innovators, the survivors. They have an internalized satellite navigation system. 
so they aren't scared of uncharted territory. They have a strong sense of duty to others. They try to have secure marriages. They hand on their values to their children. They belong to strong communities. They take daring but carefully calculated risks. And when they fail, they have rapid recovery times. They have discipline. They enjoy tough challenges and hard work. They play it long. They're more interested in sustainability than quick profits. They know they have to be responsible to customers, employees, and shareholders, as well as to the wider public, because only thus will they survive in the long run. They don't do stupid things, like creative accounting, or subprime mortgages, or falsified emissions data, because they know you can't fake it forever. But somehow the West has, in the immortal words of Queen Elsa in Frozen, I hope you get my rabbinic reference here, the West has let it go. It has externalized what it once internalized. It has outsourced responsibility is reduced ethics to economics and politics, which means we are dependent on the market and the state forces we can do little to control. And one day, our children or grandchildren or theirs will turn back and ask, how did the West lose what once made it great? Every observer of the grand sweep of history from the prophets of Israel to the Islamic sage Ibn Khaldun, from Giambattista Vico to John Stuart Mill, from Bertrand Russell to Will Durant, has said essentially the same thing, that civilizations begin to die when they lose the moral passion that brought them into being in the first place. It happened to Greece and Rome and it can happen to the West. The sure signs are these. A falling birth rate. Moral decay. Growing inequalities. A loss of trust in social institutions. Self-indulgence on the part of the rich. Hopelessness on the part of the poor. Unintegrated minorities a failure to make sacrifices in the present for the sake of the future, a loss of faith in old beliefs and no new vision to take their place. These are the danger signals and they are flashing now. There is an alternative to strive to become inner directed again. This means recovering the moral dimension that links our welfare to the welfare of others, making us collectively responsible for the common good. It means recovering the spiritual dimension that helps us tell the difference between the value of things and their price. We are more than consumers and voters. Our dignity transcends what we earn and own. It means remembering that what's important isn't just satisfying our desires, but also knowing which desires to satisfy. It means restraining ourselves in the present so that our children may have a viable future. It means reclaiming collective memory and identity so that society becomes less of a hotel and more of a home. In short, it means learning that there are some things we cannot or should not outsource some responsibilities we cannot and should not delegate away. We owe it to our children and grandchildren not to throw away what once made the West great. And not for the sake of some idealized past, but for the sake of a demanding and deeply challenging future. If we do simply let it go, if we continue to forget that a free society is a moral achievement that depends on responsibility and restraint, then what will come next, be it Russia or China or ISIS or Iran, will neither be liberal nor democratic. 
and it will certainly not be free. We need to restate the moral and spiritual dimensions in the language of the 21st century using the media of the 21st century to inspire, to give hope, and to unite. The moral and spiritual dimensions of human flourishing are what the Templeton Prize and the Templeton Foundation have always been about. And I pray and I hope that it will be by developing these things, themes globally, together with others, over the coming years, that I hope I can repay a little of the honor you have bestowed on me today. Thank you. Well, that was the conclusion of the acceptance speech at last year's 2016 Templeton Prize Award Giving. It's an award that recognises the contribution a living individual has given to our understanding of life's spiritual dimension. And it was, of course, the former Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs who was last year's winner. So now let's continue my conversation on the profile with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs particularly as I ask him about his approach to certain celebrities who have a bit more of a dim view of religion. Let's talk a bit about your, the work you've done around things like secular materialism. You, you wrote a book um, really looking at the relationship between science and faith. Mm. We live in an age of a high degree of scepticism. Mm. You addressed this a little bit mm. as well in your acceptance speech at uh, the, the Templeton mm. Prize. Um, what... What, what, um, what do you do about the fact we do live in such a polarised age? You've got religious extremism on one side, aggressive secularism on the other side. How, how, how in a society today are we supposed to steer the line? There was a, a writer, an American writer called Richard Weaver, who said the trouble with humanity is that we forget to read the minutes of the last meeting. <laughs> you know, we've been here before, we just forget So if I look at figures today, the famous scientific atheists, and you look for their precedents in history, you have very clear precedents. There was a figure in the third pre-Christian century in Greece called Epicurus. And there was a figure in second century, early, late first century, early second century Rome called Lucretius. And these were both scientific materialists and that their work is very, very similar to the figures today. And what fascinates me is when these figures emerged. Greece of the 3rd century BCE was a civilization on the verge of decline. And the same was true about the Rome of Lucretius. Indeed, Livy, who lived at that time, wrote one of the most poignant sentences in all of history. He said, we have reached the stage where we can stand neither our vices nor their cure, which is a very, very pointed mm. thing. So when you get voices like that, you know um, that there are warning signs flashing about the future of a particular civilization. Well, that's what I tried to say on accepting the prize, mm. that... Um, civilizations begin to fail when they lose the moral voice, the moral inspiration that created them in the first place. You talked about it as we're outsourcing our morality now in favor of a kind of the the lowest common denominator, what what economics tells us we can get away with essentially. I mean this 21st century atheism is seriously low-grade atheism. (laughs) You want decent atheism, go to David Hume go to Nietzsche, go to Bertrand Russell, who did it with grace and humor. Right. Those were the classy atheists. I, my <laughs> doctoral supervisor, the late Sir Bernard Williams, probably the most brilliant philosopher of his day, was an atheist, a very, very committed atheist, but, you know, sophisticated, profound, subtle. And the truth is um, that I've learned more from an atheist like Nietzsche than from many other thinkers, because if you really penetrate to the core of Nietzsche, you see what's at stake. Mm. Um, Nietzsche believed that once you got rid of God, you would lose the morality that he attributed to Jews and Christians, compassion for the weak or for the poor. 
And what would you, what you would go back to is what we're really supposed to be, namely people who worship the will to power. Now, I think Nietzsche was right. That is the choice. Is it the will to power or is it the will to life? But I can imagine if Richard Dawkins was sitting here, yeah. he would say, what an incredibly arrogant thing to say. I, I'm a perfectly moral person. I don't need God to be moral. Um, well, you probably need God to be polite because he's not very <laughs> good at that. You know, but... Uh, what? I mean, atheists do tend to be very angry and very rude. And unfortunately, they also tend to think that they're wiser than they are. I once heard an Oxford academic say about another academic, on the surface, he's profound, but deep down, he's superficial. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. I mean, you've had your run-ins once or twice with the aforementioned Richard Dawkins. Oh, I love him. Let me be absolutely straight. He is one of the most brilliant science writers of our time. Full stop, he is one of the Mm. most brilliant writers of our time. He has a wonderful sense of awe of nature and of the sublime. You know, I I mean, I just, you know, he he goes around (laughs) hitting religious people once in a while, and we probably need to be hit God sent us here, for, uh, God sent Richard Dawkins for a reason, because we are too complacent, we believe six impossible things before <laughs> breakfast, we're too credulous, and we accept too much as the will of God, which we shouldn't accept. So, you know, just as Richard Dawkins mm. sees religious people as part of the wonderful Darwinian plan of random genetic mutations. So I see random genetic mutations like Richard Dawkins as part of the divine plan. We each make space for the other in our universe. But he's a great man. I mean, let's but, but not a great theologian in your view. And, and hence you have, I know, critiqued him for, for instance, his passage in The God Delusion where he described the God of the Old Testament as a genocidal, maniacal, um, stupid, kind of ignorant brute. And, and you said that even verged on anti-Semitism. Well, it is, because only Christians use the phrase, the God of the Old Testament. No one else in the universe uses that phrase. Mm. For us, there's only one thing called the Hebrew Bible, so Mm. no Jew uses that phrase, and no non-Jew other than Christians use that phrase. So I'm afraid that Richard there was, without intending to, without Mm. remotely being guilty of any malice, is part of a very ancient polemic which goes back to the early church fathers called the adversus judaeus tradition the teachings of contempt which came out from a particular time in history but is still lurking there just beneath the surface but that's okay i mean i I, none of that was intentional i mean he's he's i wouldn't remotely accuse him Mm. of being anti-semitic he totally and absolutely isn't what what um we, you were talking at the, the Templeton Prize about the age we live in and, yeah. and this, the fact that you, one of the things you mentioned is you've never seen before politics quite as ugly as it's mm. been in, in recent yeah. years. Um, just this week, Donald Trump received the, the nomination mm. uh, officially yeah. for the, uh, the Republican Party. Um, what's your view of him and, and obviously the kind of way he approaches religion and culture and society, what, what does that say about where we're at? Look, now? I never say anything about particular politicians, and, and I don't believe religious leaders should ever get involved in mm. party politics. So I'm not going to answer you directly. Okay. But I do think that American political culture has had this extraordinary tradition of speaking to what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Just to go back to his second inaugural, Mm. you know, with malice to none and charity to all, let us engage in this work, binding up the nation's wounds. I mean, there was something profoundly healing about Abraham Lincoln's language. And although he wasn't a regular churchgoer, he did, in the middle of the Civil War in 1863, proclaim a national fast for America Because he said, you know, if we are tearing each other apart, there must be some collective sin that we are guilty of. So Abraham Lincoln was not somebody who demonized his opponents. Mm. As you know, um, uh, Team of Rivals, that extraordinary book about him, explains how he 
actually made the people who'd opposed him as president part of his yeah. closest inner team. So Abraham Lincoln knew what it was to use the language of politics as a mode of healing. And when feelings are very raw, and they are now almost everywhere in the world because the pace of change, technologically, economically, politically, has got so rapid. We need politics as a form of healing. I wrote a book about this once many years ago. I called it The Politics of Hope. And I called it that because the thing I most worry about is the politics of hopelessness and fear. And, fear. Mm. and that generates blame, mm. a sense of victimhood. It wasn't us, it was them. And that generates the world's worst politics. That generates the politics of hate. Given that we are seeing that in some quarters today, you also spoke in the acceptance speech of the need to rediscover and cultivate what you call a sort of inner directedness, um, a kind of cultivation of the soul, I suppose. Yeah. Why, why have we forgotten that? What, why, why, you, you quoted... Uh, the, the Disney film Frozen, the West, hmm. Western society seems to have said, we're, we're going to let it go. Yeah, because we, we had this magical belief in the power of the market and the state to deal with everything. If it was a matter of choices, that's the market. If it's a matter of the consequences of choices, you made the bad choice, you smoke too much, you're too overweight, the state will deal with it. So we outsourced morality to the market and the state. Now, I love the market. I love the liberal democratic state. But they can't solve all our problems. There has to be this third thing called conscience. And conscience always comes, although it's very individual, from being part of a moral community. You can't outsource moral responsibility. And that's, I think we tried to do that because it was so seductive if you could, you know, if you, you want it and you can afford it and you can get it somewhere on the internet, why not? You know, just abolish yeah. morality. And if you're worried that, you know, somehow or other, someday from now, you're going to find yourself in trouble, well, somebody else will look at it. And I think that has left us and you powerless. Don't think, you don't think secularism alone can deliver that kind of moral sense. I, I was very careful in that speech to be as keep as low a religious profile as possible. Mm. I didn't speak about God. Mm. I spoke about inner directedness mm. because the truth is we're all in this together. Secular humanists like Richard Dawkins and, and, and Jews, Christians, people of all faiths. But our kids, and by now, you know, my grandchildren, they're all part of this internet, social media yeah. generation where they're being bombarded, saturated with images, all of which suggests that you can have it all and you can have it now, or you ought to want it all and mm. want it now. And, of course, that is the death knell to any civilization because, as Sigmund Freud said, and I quoted this in my speech... Uh, civilization is built, built on the capacity to defer the gratification of instinct. So this, I really think this is deeply serious. It doesn't hit the front page news, but it's there underneath. And to confront this, I am not going to ask people, first you've got to believe in God, or first you've got to be religious. This is bigger than that. So I tried to choose a language that really embraces all of us. Mm. Um, thank you for sharing the time with us today. Uh, there was one question that I wanted to ask, and I'm going to put you on the spot for this, really. But as a rabbi, you would have told 100,000 stories probably mm. in your time. Storytelling mm. for Jesus was mm. a prime way of communicating mm. what he wanted to get mm. across. Do you have a, a favorite story, one that you've told many a time to, to get your yeah. audience to, to perk up and and listen to what you're saying. Look, I heard this story uh, shortly after my trip to America in 1968. Uh, I went back and I became chairman of the Jewish Society and I invited to address us an Oxford professor of Roman law called David Dauber, sadly no longer alive, 
Regis Professor of Roman Law at the University of Oxford, a Jewish scholar who'd come over in 1938 escaping Germany. And uh, he asked me when I met him, um, what, what are you studying? And I said, philosophy. He said, oh dear, 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 dear. <laughs> you have to stop that immediately. Philosophers are completely otherworldly. They have no idea what day it is. You know, you must stop <laughs> He said, who is your favorite philosopher? Well, studying at Cambridge at the time, I obviously said Wittgenstein. So he said, I will tell you a story. He still had a very Germanic accent about Wittgenstein. He said, Wittgenstein was standing on the platform of the Cambridge Cambridge railway station waiting for the London train. And he had with him two of his disciples, Professor H.L.A. Hart from Oxford and the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, an enormous woman. (laughs) And because they were so engrossed in philosophy, they completely failed to notice the train arrive at the station. They failed to notice as people were getting off. And they almost failed to notice until it started leaving the station. He said, and Professor Hart ran and heaved himself on board. And Elizabeth Anscombe ran and heaved herself on board. And Wittgenstein ran but could not catch up with the train. And he was standing there on a platform with such a forlorn and sad look that a woman, seeing him looking so sad, came up to him and said, don't worry, there'll be another train in an hour's time. And he looked at her and said, but you don't understand. They came to see me off. (laughs) Which is life, really, isn't it? (laughs) So I have loved that story from that day to this. Whether it's really happened or it's apocryphal, it's a great story. (laughs) Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, really appreciate you spending some time telling us about your life and all the very best as you continue your endeavours to, to uh, wake the nation up to, to the direction it's heading and what we can do about it. Thank you and bless you. I hope you've enjoyed today's programme. I'm Justin Briley. This was The Profile. And if you want to find more interviews with leading Christians in all walks of life, go to premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. And if you'd like to read this interview with Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, please go to premierchristianity.com slash free sample and ask for a free sample copy of the magazine. Hope you can join us again on The Profile at the same time next week. For now, I'll leave you in the capable hands of David Rose and Premier Playback.